starting with verse 13. So this morning we're going to be in Mark 2, starting with verse 13. And last time we looked at get up, we looked at a few folks that Jesus ministered to and touched who had to get up to really enjoy the blessing that he had for them. And this morning we're going to look at really taking the rest of the chapter. We're only going to take a few verses at a time, little bites at a time, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday under the heading or the title of religion versus relationship. And we'll see how the two of them play out. Um, relationship is, is a relationship. You all have relationships with somebody unless you're a hermit or a recluse. Uh, but you know even if you have a friend, there's some type of relationship. And relationships take work. Religion is kind of something that you do. You kind of get caught up in this kind of, for lack of a better term, OCD-like mantra where you're saying the same things, you're doing the same things, and God's like, I'm a person, you know, we can have discussion. And, and that's, that's odd for some. They, you know, you might come into this church and say, I've never heard that before. But really, you know, some say, well, gee, another relationship that I have to maintain. Yes, relationships are work. However, if you establish the main relationship, the one who created love, the one who created interaction, and you have that relationship established first, then all other relationships become better as they emanate from that primary relationship. Um, you know, David in the, in the Psalms, he wrote so many Psalms, and even before the dispensation of grace and the Christ coming to show us the way, David would pen these love letters to God. He would talk about how, you know, he went through difficulties and he was protected, uh, he, and he went through all these issues and wrote out the beautiful Psalms. Actually, Pastor Paul's teaching those on Wednesday. Um, now, there are many well-meaning religious people who just kind of do it. It's easier to do, and they don't know God. Not, not Some of them may, but some of them don't. And Jesus in Matthew 7, he even says that many will come to me doing all these great religious type of uh, you know, attitudes or works, and he, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. So it's very important that we have that relationship with him. Now, Calvary Chapel, our movement has been around for decades. And sadly enough, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, there's a resting on laurels. You know, well, I'm, a, I'm from a Calvary Chapel, so I'm automatically going to heaven. Not if you don't know him. So I have no problem looking within our own movement and saying we have problems in our movement too. It has to be that one-on-one between you and God. And this is so important that if you, by the time the service is over, if you still don't understand it, please talk to one of us because it's the most important thing, the most important relationship you have in your life. So this morning we're only going to take a few verses. Um, Jesus, two self-portrayals, one as Jesus as the great physician and one of Jesus as the bridegroom. So we're going to jump in and we're going to look at what he says and his revelation about himself. So starting with verse 13 in chapter 2, it says, Then he, Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, or who we know as the disciple Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many. And they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees, the ruling elite religious class, 
saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. So this ends last Sunday. We, we read this actually two Sundays ago. And really we left it with the call of Matthew. But where I want to start it this morning is Matthew's associates, Matthew's friends. And these religious leaders, you know, it was really an open society. There was less privacy back then than we really have today. You know, if you had your house open and there was a, a gathering, your neighbors could come by and see what's going on. For us Americans, you know, we're so... I want my personal space, but I'm going to talk a little bit about culture back then too, so we really understand what's going. So the religious leaders come, Jesus is, is there, Matthew's throwing a party in his house, and they're pretty much waiting to pounce on the Lord instead of listening to what he had to say. Now when we combine this with Luke's gospel, we find that it's Matthew's house, Matthew gives this great feast for his unsaved associates and friends to meet with Jesus and for them to get saved. Now, that's very much like how we kind of came to faith. We come to faith, we're so excited, the Lord accepts us, He's forgiven us for our sins, we have eternal life, we're so excited, we want to tell everybody. We want to tell our family members, our friends, we want to, you know, I know for me, I, I was so excited that I pushed people in the other direction. They're like, enough with the Jesus thing, can we just hang out a little bit? So I can see Matthew just so excited, the excitement about getting his friends and his associates saved. Okay. However, the people are made to feel unwelcome by the religious establishment. And we don't know. You know, these guys come in, they have their vestments, they have their dress that distinguishes them as religious leaders. And maybe the discussion was a little loud, who knows? You know, Jesus is making the sinners feel, feel welcome, and these guys are picking them apart. They're the scum of the earth. Look at that woman over there. Isn't she, she's known, you know, to be and go around with different guys. And that guy over there, he, he's the town drunk. And, and this, that guy's a thief. And all your tax collector's friends, we're sick of them ripping us off for Rome. You guys are a bunch of turncoats. So this was their attitude towards these sinners. You wonder why today so many are hostile and even venomous towards religion. You know, I, I talk to many and... Uh, I often say, you know, we have fun at church. A lot of times people look at me and they, what? You have fun at church? You're not supposed to have fun at church. It's supposed to be somber. You're supposed to walk in and wipe the smile off your face. And, and all these preconceived ideas about what church is. And I say, I say, we have fun. We laugh a lot. We have a good time. And uh, many don't understand it. And, you know, the, the format for the Berean Room, which I want to start doing with the young adults starting this uh, month, you know, I kind of I say to them, bring your friends in. Bring this, the atheists in, the evolution. Let's, let's talk. You know, let's, let's introduce them to who Jesus is, the real Jesus of the Scripture. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I do believe that it's definitely necessary, and I'll come back to some of that. In verse 16, the religious leaders say this to who? Not Jesus. They say it to his disciples. They're already s sowing seeds of discord, of doubt, of division. You know, your, your rabbi, this new upstart rabbi, self-proclaimed prophet that you guys are following, is this right to be in the company of these people? And later on we'll find that 
the disciples actually have discussions with Jesus, no doubt, about doctrine and things like that that they've heard from the community, that they've heard from the religious system. And Jesus teaches them for a three-plus uh, period of years, tries to deprogram from the religion that they've learned and help them to understand a relationship with God. I think it's funny, in Matthew 15, the disciples even say to Jesus, I can just picture them taking him aside and saying, oh, did, with that teaching, did you know you offended the Pharisees? Of course he knew he offended the Pharisees. He wanted to start this debate so the truth could come out. I love Jesus' style. But you know what? Even in Christianity today, and we have to go back and forth from what we're reading and make an application to our society today, maybe, maybe even church today. The pharisaical spirit, the legalistic spirit has not died. It's still alive and well, and we can find it in our own communities. There's some who are always sowing seeds of doubt and division. They have no substance. They have no creativity. They have no originality, but they can only resort to tearing down. And of course, Jesus, in his fashion, whether they said it quietly to the disciples or not, Jesus is omniscient. He heard it. He understood. He knew their hearts. So he answers them, and we'll look at that. I want to turn, I'm just going to turn to two scriptures. First, Matthew 9.13, and then Hosea 6.6. 6. And in Matthew's gospel, he, he gives more of the conversation. Right? And really starting in 12, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he tells this to the religious leaders, Go and learn what this means, quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, end quote. Now he's quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, let's go back. Hosea 6.6, 6. now we're going back several centuries before the Son of God came to the earth in the form of a man. The prophet Hosea says in 6.6, 6, speaking about God, he's speaking for God, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This is important. Whether it was in Hosea's time, whether it was in the Lord's time, or whether it was in our time. We keep thinking, you know, this is 2,000 years ago, and that Hosea is even further back, and it's so far removed from where I am today. Not true. God's heart never changes. That's one thing we'll find. He has a very predictable MO, modus operandi. You know, he, he doesn't change. He's not whimsical. He lays down his truths, and we're supposed to understand those truths and learn about him. The knowledge of God more than these sacrifices. And he also wanted the people not only to know about their God, and that's why we preach the word from the pulpit here in this church, because the word is very important. It changes us. And we understand the mercy that God has shown us towards us as sinners but he also wants us, as sinners saved by grace, to show mercy to others. And in this, this dialogue here, this wasn't happening. The religious system was judgmental. They were cruel. They put people, they marginalized them, they made them outcasts. And that's not what God's heart is. So in Hosea's day, going back really far, they became religious, right-oriented. They did their sacrifices. They did what was prescribed in the law. And they could follow the law but their hearts were not right because they didn't understand the heart of Father God. And I think that's one of the most challenging things that I have to do, especially in the society we live in, is to explain that God is a perfect, loving, gentle, and kind Father who just wants the best for all of us. 
He's not looking for us to get out of line so he can whack us. He loves us and he wants a relationship with us. Now, Jesus is accused, really, of the sin of association. Understand that, you know, in today's society, when we eat, you know, we could even go to, like, one of those places in Lancaster and there's all these families near you and, you know, you could either talk to them or you could just kind of stay with your own tribe and, and, you know, not even look over in their direction, although you're sitting right next to them. Um, I've been at houses where uh, maybe some young people are eating, and they're, with one hand they're eating, and the other hand they're texting. And nothing is said during the whole meal. And one time I asked, are you guys talking to each other? Uh, and they went back down to texting. <laughs> so eating has a little bit of a different connotation today than it did back then. When you ate back then, you didn't use utensils. You grabbed the bread and you broke it and you gave it to the next person. So understand culturally that when you ate with a person, you were bonding with them, you were assimilating. It has a different meaning than it did today. So they had a perceived sin about Jesus. Of course, it was perceived that he was associating with bad people, but he was trying to positively influence them, right? He was trying to save them. So they were wrong. Now, I've got to tell you something. Sometimes, even in the church, we have it flipped. In the church, the church at times has become very seclusionist, and we want to keep the outside out. But the truth is that it's actually better to go out into the world and share your faith and influence the unsaved positively for Jesus Christ than it is to hang out with a bunch of carnal Christians. First Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is very clear about that. And a lot of Christians gloss over that. That's, that, so these guys actually had it backwards from what the right way to do things is. This is a very unusual attitude. And, and I know you've seen this if you've been a Christian for a while. That sinners saved by grace, all right? We're all sinners. We get saved by the grace of God. And now there's an element of the church that now becomes haughty and looks down on other sinners looking for the same grace that we were given. Isn't that weird? It's almost like the door's closed and, hey, that's it. You know, no more for you. We're, we're, in the, we're in the A team in the good club and the rest of you, you know, fend for yourselves. So let me say that again. Unusual attitude of sinners saved by grace. Now looking down on other sinners wanting the same grace as if it's an exclusive club. Do we understand the meaning of all? God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now verse 17, here's his first Self-portrayal, 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is looking at himself as the, or portraying himself as the great physician. Now, a physician is supposed to treat physical diseases, but the great physician you know, he cares for us physically and mentally, but what's most important is he cares for us eternal, eternally. Where are we going to spend eternity? And when we look at a physician or a doctor, we want one that's going to find the root of the problem and fix it and not just treat the symptoms. Recently, I, you know, after 46 years, and all of a sudden I'm having eye trouble. So I go to the doctor. I go to this group. And if, you know, she was talking to me and, if she would have just said to me, here, take these glasses. I got them from Walmart. Put them on. Does it look good? Good. Now get out of my office and give me my copay. I probably wouldn't go back, but that's not what she did. She checked my eye pressure. She checked, you know, the retina. Is it detached? I went through all these tests 
looking for the root of the problem with my eyes. Unfortunately, after all that, I came to the conclusion what was wrong, and it was <clears throat> old age. <clears throat> old age. <laughs> I'm okay. I just need some water here. That's what happens as we get older. <laughs> but Jesus needs to treat the root of the problem, and the root is sin. And he lovingly treated them as the great physician. You know, sometimes we deal with others and we, you know, in, in leadership or as pastors or even as Christians who've been around for a while and you're trying to talk to your unsafe friends and they're telling you, listen, I've, me and my spouse don't get along and the kids are unruly and I'm just depressed and I'm angry, I don't, I'm just not fulfilled in life. And, you know, a loving person's going to gently ask at some point, well, what role do you have in the family? No, you don't understand. I just told you it's my spouse's fault and my kid's fault and the circumstances... I'm fine. It's, it's them. And you, you, you start to look at the, the root, the, the disease that's causing the symptoms. And some, as if to say, hey, listen, I've had this for a long time. I cherish this disease. Please, just treat the symptoms and not the disease. But Jesus had to go right to the heart of the matter. It was the sin. It was the fact that they were separated from God that were making them unfulfilled. And, and, and you know, all the uns in life. Now, as we look at this, Jesus says, the righteous, in other words, the people living a life submitted to God, right, need less of Christ's attention than the sick, than those on the wide path of destruction. The irony to all this is that the sinners knew they were sick. The tax, tax collectors knew they were rip-off artists. They wanted to get right. That's why they were there listening to Jesus. But the religious leaders were also sick, and the irony is they didn't know that they needed him as well. They were self-righteous, they thought they were fine, and uh, their hearts were completely wrong. So the Pharisees were aghast at the kind of folks that Jesus was ministering to. But we can see the same spirit today. Brothers and sisters, if we are only desiring to see people come into the church that are well-dressed, well-mannered, have it all together, and they're flawless if there is such a person, then we're completely missing the boat. Amen. Amen. You know, John MacArthur has some good teachings, but he does subscribe to, and you can look it up after service, Lordship Salvation. Lordship Salvation started in the 1980s, and basically it was trying to combat carnality in the church, which is a good thing. But like some of these ideas, they go too far. Lordship salvation is we start now focusing on the believer's behavior. Are they really submitted? We start focusing and over-focusing on the externals. Now we start to judge others. And that's, that's a, a problem that can get out of hand really quickly. And there are some that even today come out of that movement. It usually is in the hyper-Calvinist uh, type of movement. And they actually come and they say, I'm questioning my salvation. I don't know if I'm even saved. After maybe five years or more of being in a church... I think sometimes we can over-educate ourselves. I think it's good to be educated. But in the ministry, if we get over-educated, then we start taking simple things like the gospel and we make it complicated so people don't understand the simplicity of God's truth. And we start to twist it like the religious leaders do. And then people go back to this hopeless condition. Now I've got to tell you, if I was in a church like that, I might feel uncomfortable. I might say to myself, gee, I can't wait get to go back to Calvary where there's imperfect people like myself that I can go back to fellowship with. But a few, a few points on this. Let's, let's look at this from the other end because we have to try to hit the whole picture here. Number one, the religious leaders, yeah, they're the bad guys. They're the villains. We can look at them and point the fingers at them and, and we can be self-righteous and saying you know, they were all bad. But they weren't all bad because many of them came 
to faith as we see in the scripture. But there was also a responsibility of the hearer. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're reading the word and you see Jesus' all-inclusiveness and his love for you and the things that he wants for you and you just kind of poo-poo it, that's on you. Because like Jesus said in the parables of the soil, is your heart fertile soil to receive the seed of the gospel and let it to start grow and sprouting roots in your life and let it change you and, and grow that relationship with him. So there is a responsibility of the hearer. You know, we, we sometimes, I, I don't think I do, but in ministry I've seen this where uh, the gospel is now from being overcomplicated, it becomes oversimplified. It becomes a situation where we're begging people to get saved and we want to put the gospel on the clearance rack and, and mark Jesus down to 50% off. Hey, it doesn't work like that. What he has is awesome. And, and we can't cheapen it or put it in a pretty package or put a bow on it and try to sell it. It is what it is, but it's awesome. It's the most wonderful thing you'll ever do in your life. So that's the first thing that we look at, the heart of the hearer. Number two is that... When you, we open our doors, and, and this is another thing that I want to kind of talk about after at the third point, as we open our doors to all, and that's what we should do as a church, we will invite some drama at times. There will be sheep that come in and they bite, and they bite, because they don't know anything but to bite, until they learn, they learn the love of the good shepherd and they start biting less. There will be drama, it will happen. And the third point before we move on is that I have a theory, and it's based in scripture, if you look at the book of Acts, who came together with one accord? The believers. Now, this is, we, people say this all the time, it's the church, the building. Well, back in those days, and according to the actual Greek word, ekklesia, the church was the gathering of believers. They came together in one accord. They would meet at people's houses, in caves, in the sewage system, because churches were illegal. So they came together and they were the church, not the building. And what would happen was they would strengthen each other through prayer, through fellowship, through communion, through the word. Right? It really was no unbelievers. What happened over the centuries and the millennia is that churches now have become over-accommodated, and I think largely because Western believers are not doing their jobs in evangelization. Pastor Sam spoke last Sunday about the ministry of re reconciliation, which is something that we all possess. Even if you sit down with somebody and they ask you, well, how is your life? Well, you seem to take this well. How do you do it? And you just open the door with your testimony. That's evangelism. Tell them what the Lord did for you and how he, he can be that for you as well. It's not just for me. It's not an exclusive club. So churches now have actually opened their doors, not just to believers, but to unbelievers too, largely because the church is not going out and evangelizing their communities. So it's interesting, not wrong, not right, not wrong, just, just different, just changed over the years. Verse 18. And the disciples of John, meaning John the Baptist, and of the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now Jesus is speaking him about himself in these last few verses that we're going to cover for today's reading. So he goes from the great physician to the groom or the bridegroom. He's talking about himself, self-portrayal. We can see these images in the Old Testament. God would speak of himself as a, as a loving husband to Israel. 
And at times when she would go after false gods, he would say she was an unfaithful wife. So that same imagery is now in the New Testament with Christ and the church. So it does have precedent. Right? Now let's, let's look at this. But I want to talk about fasting first before we get into his image about being the groom because this is, is a big part of it, what he's saying here. So basically, what is fasting? Well, there's different types of fast. I mean, I don't recommend the 30-day 30, 30 fast that Jesus uh, did. That is, you know, when, when you fast, it, you have to um, acclimate your body if you've never done it before. And some people may have sugar issues and different things, and you know, probably should consult your physician. But it, at the very least, the Daniel fast, he didn't eat the king's delicacies. So there were different types of fasts in the Bible. Basically, you would um, give up something to put into your body for a time so that you could play down the physical needs and play up hearing from God, attenuate your spiritual needs. In a, in a translation, I can almost say it like this, that how many people remember the old radios before they were digital and there was a knob and the, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to date yourself. <laughs> but there was a, a needle and it would go back and forth and you could hear it as it was trying to pick up the station. It would go, and then it would finally land on the station and you'd be like, nobody move, especially the person touching the radio. Don't move. Sounds good. Just stay right there in that position. This is sort of what fasting is on a spiritual <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> this basically is a way for us to no body move, to tell our body to be quiet and be still because we really want to focus on what God is showing us. Maybe you fast for somebody to get well. Maybe you fast for an important decision in your life. So it's basically a way to, to, to kind of get all the interference out of your life, play down the needs of your body so that you can hear more clearer. And that's a, an oversimplification. But do you realize how much your body tells you that it wants stuff every day. Think about it. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. It's like the Jedi mind trick. You don't even know. I'm hungry. You go to the refrigerator. You don't even know why you're opening the door, but your stomach says something to your brain. You're like, I'm going to go to the refrigerator and open the door. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm cold. I'm hot. I'm this. I'm that. I got to tell you, it's hard for me to walk past anything chocolate without kind of stopping in my tracks. I got this issue. Now, in my trichotomous nature, body, mind, spirit, my mind and my spirit have nothing to do with this, but my body craves it. And then somebody sent me an article that chocolate has magnesium and iron in it, so I'm thinking I could eat it every day, you know? <laughs> I'm kind of deceiving myself a little bit, but this is my body's craving for this thing, and for you it might be something else, but the bottom line is our body tells us, it bullies us sometimes. It tells us what to do all the time, and sometimes you have to say, shut up, I'm not listening to you, you know? And we try to do that. But fasting in itself is not holy. Fasting is not to be worshipped. Fasting is something where we accomplish a goal in our lives, in our relationship, in our walk with the Lord. Maybe you've been praying about something for years, and maybe you're just really in a rut, and you decide, you know what, maybe I'll fast and see if I can hear clearly what the Lord is saying. But the problem was the worship was going away from God in the religious system and the worship of the rites, like worship of fasting. And we're going to look at next Sunday about working on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a big thing too. It accomplished the goal in a person's life, but the religious system made an idol out of it. So you worship the, the fasting, you worship the, uh, the Sabbath, but you're not worshiping God anymore. Let's go back to the, the situation at hand. So 
The disciples of John the Baptist lead the questioning. They're not trying to be disrespectful to Jesus. Remember, we've had 2,000 years of understanding grace and, and the church and things like that. This was something new to them. They only knew, the disciples of John the Baptist, of the baptism of repentance. And Jesus had to fill them in on the other things that came with grace and salvation. So the disciples of John kind of lead the questioning. And Jesus is very kind and careful with them as he starts explaining these things. And he portrays himself as the groom. Now let's look at this. Cultural. We have to understand the culture at the time to understand what he's saying. So, number one, a contemporary wedding today, who's the main attraction? The bride. The bride is the main attraction. I remember um, looking for a station the other day, and, or a while back, and I, there's this woman in a wedding dress, and they're fitting her, and she's yelling and screaming, and I realized later that the show was called Bridezilla. Anybody ever watch that? <laughs> And I thought to myself, how does anybody get along with this person? <laughs> Today, the most important person in a wedding is the bride. Back then, it was the groom. Different cultural shift. Now, that makes a big difference as we start to explain this. Jesus came as, a, as God in the flesh into the world to bring salvation. He's the giver of life. So the whole main attraction at the time that he came should have been on him. Not because he had an ego need, but because he was giving out something that was eternal. And there was a window of opportunity, right, for him to be on, this, on the earth and do this. Now, in a sense, and let's, let's go back to the culture again. In, a, in, in that culture, a wedding wasn't you spend a fortune on a one-day event for a few hours and everybody goes home and then we have to pay the bill later. In that culture, the wedding was a several-day feast. It was a constant feasting. It was a constant celebration for days on end. So, it would have been unheard of for anybody in that culture to go to the wedding while they were with the bridegroom and fast. So let's look at cultural, now let's look at spiritual. And if fasting is hearing from God, then you have the Son of God right there with you. So why would you need to fast to try to hear from God when he was right there amongst you, right? So that's important. I mean, if, so if you went to a friend's wedding back then and you came to the wedding and it was the first day of the feast and, hey, you know, friend, eat. Oh, I'm fasting. What do you mean you're fasting? Fast next week. We're having a celebration. Eat. You understand that? Secondly, as we look at this in a symbolic sense, again, there's precedent with the father and Israel as this marital relationship. So now it's the son and the church. And third, spiritual application. Again, why would you need to fast when the bridegroom or Christ was in your presence? Now, Jesus said the time will come where the bridegroom, bridegroom will be taken away. In a sense, un uncrucified on the cross, put into the cave. But he did rise again, spent 40 days on the earth, and then ascended into heaven. So his physical presence, so to speak, was removed. And then we fast again, right? And there's no prescribed thing for that as, as there isn't for communion. So some will ask me, is there fasting in heaven? I think the answer is no. Because, you know, we'll be in heaven with him. We'll be in his presence. No more sin. This real close, cohesive relationship with God the Father again. It says uh, personally in Revelation 21 that it'll wipe away every tear from our eye. No more pain, no more suffering. So it's going to be a, a, an even different dispensation than what we're in right now. So let's look at this as well. I'm just going to go through one more uh, imagery here and then we'll, we'll close it up. 
The fourth point is the chronological steps of eschatology. In other words, Jesus, if you look at the scripture, there are certain things that he does that model this wedding custom back then. And we're at a certain point, and they were at a certain point. So let's start with the first one. Jesus, as the bridegroom, came to court his bride, the church. He's still courting his bride. Some of you this morning who don't know the Lord, he's courting you through his word. He wants you to be with him for eternity, but he's a gentleman about it. He's not rough. He's not overbearing. He's not a stalker. He loves you, and he wants you to make the decision to complete that relationship. So Jesus courts his bride. He did it back then. He's still doing it today. In those days, there was a courting period. Now today, um, you know, we even have like online dating and all that kind of stuff. So uh, back then it was different. You know, it was very different. Uh, there was a courting process. It was a getting to know each other. You see what I'm saying? Before the actual uh, wedding. The second point is that Jesus, after the ascension, returns to heaven. He tells us this in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. So right now, he's in there preparing a place for his bride, for us. And, and we can't imagine what it may look like or what it may be like, but it's going to be pretty awesome, certainly better than what we're living in right now. If you're living in a really nice house, it's going to be even better than that. But for those of you that are not, take heart, it's going to be pretty good. So what Jesus does is he prepares a home for his bride. You know in this custom, the old customs, check this out. What the groom would do is, before the wedding... He would go to his father's house, literally, and he would nest. See, now this is, this is so cool how when we understand culture, we understand the Bible even more. You know that today in our culture, usually the woman is the nester. She comes in, she decorates. My wife had me throw away all my bachelor furniture. I put it on a truck and a tear fell from my eyes. I watched it go away. It was very comfortable, but it just it didn't go. You know, she was nesting. But in that culture... It was the man who nested. He went to his father's house. He, 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 if he had to build an extension, he did. He, he protected her. He made it comfortable. He did it exactly the way it should be for the two of them to spend their life in. And then, the third step, he would go back to get his bride. Now, he would go back to get his bride at an hour she didn't know. So in this prescribed period, she would make herself ready. She would have to be ready for her groom you know, to come back and whisk her off her feet and take her to this feast, and then from there they would go to the Father's house. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Now you start to look at all the things, for those of you who are advanced Bible students, what Jesus is going to do, how he's going to come back for us at a moment, at a time that we do not know in the Harpazu, or the transliteration from the, from the Latin, the rapture, as we all know of. So it's pretty exciting. Now, in Jesus' day... He was on the first step. In our day, two of the steps are already gone. There's only one left. Isn't that exciting? We're in an era where he can come at any time, at any moment, and come back for us. And, uh, you know, we won't have to deal with this stupid world anymore, with all its problems and all its corruption and all its hypocrisy. And we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, as we close, whether it's fasting or praying or reading the Bible or whatever, if we're making it a drudgery or somebody is discipling us in a way that we just feel overburdened or we're in prison, then we're not doing it right or they're not doing it right. See somebody who's mature and ask them about a relationship with the Lord. Anything we do with God or for God is supposed to be a joy. It's not to, supposed to be a cold, religious, right, ritual 
with no, there's no heart in it. That's the wrong way to do it. I'm going to tell you, share a little bit about when I first came to a Calvary Chapel. So I really want to disarm anybody here, not literally. Um, <laughs> I really want to disarm you um, in a, we, we, listen, we're in New Jersey, I get it, 2014, we got all, our walls are up. But let me share a personal story with me about my adventure or my uh, transition from religion to relationship. I grew up in a religion and I didn't know God at all. And I just was unstable as a person, constantly going back and forth in my life. I actually wore a, a crucifix, and when I would get scared, I would hold it like a charm, like an amulet, like it was going to protect me. Of course, I don't do that anymore. And then a friend told me about, and it could have been any church, it could have been a, you know, a conservative Baptist church, but this one happened to be a Calvary Chapel. And my friend said, hey, come to me, you know, this church is really cool. And I said, bro, I don't do church. He talked me into it. So one Sunday, he said, I'll meet you at the parking lot. And um, I drove up there. I sat in my car. And I knew what his car looked like, and I didn't see him. And church service started, and he actually didn't show up. He forgot to show up. <laughs> so I drove home. Because I was afraid to get out of that car. Because I grew up in religion. And it was cold, and it was harsh, and I knew I was a rotten person. And I knew there was no way I was going to dig myself out of that pit. I have to tell you, I was a police officer for several years, and I wasn't afraid to, to fight crime, but I was terrified to go into that church. Isn't that weird? So some of you this morning might feel the same way. You know, um, I didn't become a pastor in the first year. It took a long time of the Lord changing me. It took a long time of Him helping me feel comfortable with Him in our relationship. And then at one time, He said that you're ready, and He sent me out. But I was scared. I was scared of religion. I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want anybody coming up to me and taking my address and asking me how much I made or any of that nonsense. But Jesus has two self-portrayals. And he wants to minister to you in a personal level, whoever you are. He's the great physician. He wants you to be well. You know, the Hippocratic Oath that the doctors take, hopefully every doctor and surgeon wants what's best for you. I just read an article about a surgeon who walked six miles to save his patient. Amazing. But this is the great physician. He wants us to be well spiritually. He wants us to have everlasting life and all the promises. But he's got to deal with the root disease and you've got to let him. It's going to hurt. He's going to open you up. He's going to go into your heart. But you've got to let him excise that, that mass or whatever's hurting you. And it starts with sin. He's gentle though. Once he closes you up, you heal really well. There's no side effects. He is the great physician. The second point of Christ's self-portrayal is that he's the bridegroom. And let's look at this personally. We all want love in life. You find me the baddest, toughest guy in prison and spend some time in counseling with that person and you'll find over the years that he's been hurt and he's just covered it with anger and rage and all these other things that are so ugly in life. But that person was a little boy at once, and something went wrong in that person's life. A lot of us have walls up because we don't want our hearts to get hurt again. There's some people in this very room that have walls up. But I tell you, God, he's the bridegroom. He's courting you. He loves you. You know, it's better than flowers and candy. What he has to give you is just so, I mean, he wants to protect you. 
He wants to shelter you. He wants to counsel you. He wants to spend the rest of eternity with you and never get tired of you. There's no such thing as falling out of love when the Lord courts you. You understand that? It's forever. Things here are fleeting. Things there, things with Him are eternal. So I want to encourage you this morning. I'm going to give you the opportunity as we close that as the bridegroom, the Lord is courting you. If you don't know Him, will you accept His proposal? Let's pray.